0: The Shelly Effect is sponsored by Wallstreetwindow.com and listeners like you.
1: Now, and now, most, the most underrated voice in all, in all media, Chuck O'Shelly. June 10, 2021, allegedly, according to that thing we call a calendar. And this is indeed the show you were looking for. How do I know that? You found it. So as I speak, it is a Thursday, Thursday, the second to last broadcast day of the week. And uh, despite the fact that I had to deal with the Windows update before today's show, it does appear as though we are a fully functional battle station, as they said in Star Wars. So here it goes. Um, And I'm extremely glad that we have Larry Hancock with us. Larry-Hancock.com or Larry-Hancock.com is his website. Now, I'm not here to promote his website, but by all means, go there and check out what we are going to talk about tonight, which is the continuing series of the uh, what, what I'm calling the Larry Hancock collection. And we are almost done. Is everybody sad yet? Well, don't worry. There's a few twists and turns coming up because the final book is uh, is is something a little different. I feel like. But anyway, tonight's book is pivotal. It's important. It's necessary and literally changed my own personal nomenclature (laughs) because I use the word nexus constantly. Why do I do that? Because it is the valid structure to describe many a thing. And yes, indeed, I am a Star Trek fan. So, of course, you wind up using the word nexus in a lot of different ways. But then again, not in the world of sci-fi and fantasy is the book by Larry Hancock, It's about political assassinations, which is the subgroup that we're in. And, well, I'm going to let Larry explain quite a bit about this. And I don't know if I've ever actually done a featured show on Nexus before. I don't think so. I think uh, it, it may have been already out by the time I started doing the live shows. Might have already been out before I started talking to Larry Hancock on here. So here we go we're going to have to go back and i advise you to do so it is not an outdated concept it's not an outdated book it's not loaded with information you can't use because well it's authored by larry hancock so uh is that redundant yes it is anyway larry how are you doing sir i'm looking forward to talking about nexus because i as i said i don't think we've ever actually devoted any time to it although we've had to reference it a lot over the years so here we go larry first how you doing
2: i'm i'm okay chuck it is definitely summer here uh, you could probably appreciate it we are in the high 90s with humidity in the same place and heat index above 100 and you know it's a uh, it's painful. When I lived in Atlanta, I expected this. Living in southwestern Oklahoma, not so much.
1: <laughs> yeah, that that is basically the description of about I don't know five months out of the year here. And, uh, and I mean, I'm in Macon instead of Atlanta, but same weather, pretty much. Uh, maybe a little. When hotter. I grew up,
2: here, the average humidity with during the summer was something between twelve and fifteen percent. With climate change, it's like I said. Now it's 80% 90% plus and it's just it's not the same place it's, I grew up using what we call swamp coolers water coolers in the windows mm-hmm. if we tried to do that now we would be swimming
1: yeah although I've heard about some new technology that is almost like the swamp cooler concept that you know is apparently perpetual i don't know if that's you know obviously not the subject of discussion for tonight but who knows you know in the future once we're done with your collection we might talk about other technologies and other things going on because uh you you've uh, privately tipped to me that you might uh occupy your time with some other fascinating interests so I, i'm i'm looking, I mean, not because we're doing this show, but simply because you've decided to devote some time and energy to, to, to some other things. I, I don't know. I'd I love to talk to you about that. Actually, I love talking to you about everything, Larry. Um, and yes, indeed, the weather is uh, hot and you can almost swim in it here in Georgia right now. Uh, 90, 80 uh, percent humidity. Wonderful thing, especially if your bones ache anyway, um, <laughs> you know, which mine do. Uh, although I'm happy to report that still I'm on about I don't know four months without having to use the cane, uh, even despite this humidity. But it does hurt, my friend. Um, so anyway, I want to get on with this show and 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 get into the book. So Nexus, first of all, the term in and of itself, and there is a subtitle, and you can go ahead and give everybody the complete title. But uh, but but the fact is that that one word is perfect for what it is you cover in this book so if you could explain the title and uh and, and tell everybody what your intent was when you began writing
2: uh, sure it's kind of a, an interesting at, at this point in time as we talked last time I, I had done three different editions of someone would have talked and and while i was doing that I, I was working you know at this uh and i was traveling a lot on the airplane a lot airplane a lot and spending a lot of time in motel rooms. And so while I was doing this, I, I probably drew 30 or 40 charts, basically connecting names, times, people, chronologies. You know, I do it on the back of an airplane tray. I do it in a hotel room at night. And, and you know, mm-hmm. laying those all out on the table, it's like, where does all this come together? You know, if if what I'm seeing is correct, uh, as far as this conspiracy is concerned, where is the nexus of all these lines? Where, where do they meet? And what would be the stimulus? I mean, nexus, nexus in two senses. Nexus in terms of people and a place within an organization that would originate the idea for this uh, and, and put it into motion, and a nexus of people people again as we've talked before that would would know each other, that you could prove we're talking to each other, we're communicated, had common motives, common well, in this case literally, common strong common beliefs about President Kennedy. So that that was the challenge. And I can I can remember talking to my wife at, at lunch or something, where is it? Where where do I find it? And so Well, let me let me interrupt you. you.
1: Let me interrupt you on that, because here's the thing about it. Um, Me growing up when I did the first time I ever saw this concept utilized by anybody publicly to explain certain things was the circles of exposure, where you sit there and you build these trees of exposure where people are associated because of proximity and because of their choices and things like that. And it had nothing to do with political assassinations, actually. It was about uh, tracking uh, the, the exposure. They were trying to find patient zero when it came to the mm-hmm. uh, HIV situation. And they started building this these interesting charts of like, okay, so person A has this, and they were exposed to. Now, they had relationships with all these people. Some of them were intimate. Some of them were not. So you had to come up with a gradient scale to figure out what the likelihood was of, you know, somebody being exposed and this kind of thing. Now, I know it's a totally different subject, but in a way, you had to deal with not only that uh, on a personal level, but on a professional level is a whole other relationship. So you have to come up with different gradients here. Uh, You know, you could be associated to somebody because they're your neighbor, for instance, just totally innocuous subject. They're your neighbor. So maybe you were exposed to some toxin that they were exposed to. All right, but maybe not, because maybe you never talked to that neighbor. They might've lived next door to you, but you never spoke to them. So you have to examine not only the proximity, but the relationship, and then you have to get into, well, what was the environment that these people were in? Did they share an environment? Did they share a workplace? Did they share a grocery store? It becomes a very interesting web that you have to build I mean, almost like the the classical uh, uh, trope that you see nowadays in movies and TV where people start taking pieces of string, right, and uh, uh, wrapping them around the tacks. No, seriously. I mean, I'm trying to bring this down to a different level because in one way you're looking at that, but you're also trying to look at things that have already happened, not things that are currently in motion. So you could go and stop at somebody's house and say, observe who's coming and going. Right, like You might not realize that this person spent time with the pizza guy because the pizza guy lives on the other side of town. He's not necessarily part of the environment. All kinds of different variables come into play when trying to chart these things out. And as I said, even if you were just trying to figure out, okay, two people got sick in the same neighborhood off the same toxin, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's because of the grass or the air. It could be they went to the same grocery store and got the same bad food. You know, when they trace down botulism a few times, same kind of thing would happen. Now, I know I'm talking about diseases and toxins and everything else, and, well, maybe that's what you're talking about too, but the thing is that along all these lines, there are so many nuances to it that I can imagine that uh, uh, some things might appear obvious, other things maybe not so much, you know, and uh, did, did did people share... Casual acquaintances with somebody Did they go to the same hotels Did they work in the same agency Were they uh, you know Veterans uh, way back when Together in the military Had they served together somewhere else Had they been in jail together somewhere else I mean all this stuff Becomes a very complex Web and you're sitting there With with basically a ball of yarn At this time right? Trying to draw these lines Between everybody and figure out what that looks like all together. Where are these connections? How do they function? And everything else, except you're dealing with people that, you know, for a living, uh, kept a lot of things secret. And other people, just because they were generally, I don't know, sort of paranoid in their personalities one way or another, uh, might have uh, uh, planted misleading things into their official files, their narratives they told publicly, uh their their own, you know, job descriptions, I mean on and on and on. It it's a complex web here and after a while, uh you know, you might be looking at more yarn than pictures on your corkboard. Uh Larry, I mean, it, is that an accurate representation of what it is you were pulling together piece by piece on the back of envelopes and, and on scraps of paper and yeah. <laughs>
2: That, that was where I started, but I did find a tool that, that proved very helpful. And, and okay. one of the things that the, the string approach that, that you talk about, one of the limitations of that is that it's essentially one-dimensional and it it there's a lot of a lot of flavor in that of, of something that comes out of sociology which goes is degrees of separation. you know if you talk, everybody knows somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody, you know, and you can really belabor that to death I think that's been a a big diversion for JFK research uh, you know by by finding somebody whose cousin is somebody else's cousin and oh well, they were in the CIA so that means they're likely complicit or somebody's brother was in the military and he worked in military intelligence for it, it what I what I came across and got a tutorial on was a tool that's used in the insurance investigations industry, mm-hmm. which is a 3D model of mm-hmm. this same thing, not not one dimensional, but and it it's fairly recent. But basically, what they are able to do is is what you said in a way, Chuck. You you have the associations, but you have layers, and the layers have to do with certain types of context, you know. <laughs> Mm-hmm. How how were they associated in what activity and what operation? And you can parse down through those layers to kind of kind of like, oh, OK, here's the layer that really is interesting to me. Here are the people. And, and what I do with Nexus, literally, because, for example, to, to kind of make sense out of that, mm-hmm. people talk about the conspiracy originating. And, and we've talked about this within the CIA or within the mafia or within the whatever which is meaningless you know it, let's just say it's within the CIA what would be the layer or the nexus of the CIA where political assassination originates and that's what I did or attempted to do with nexus was to look historically what what part of the agency what layer of the agency and specifically what individuals in this time period were involved in enabling political assassination. And again, I think most of the research community assumes that that happened from the top down. That's not what I found. In fact, I found several instances where a political assassination was either started or happened without the higher levels having any idea at all what was going on. And in some instances they say actually when they found out, they put a stop to it. In other instances they didn't. But right. that, that's what I was looking for. It's that particular layer. Not just the connectivity, but the particular layer operationally where this stuff happens. And mm-hmm. so that right. that led me, that research led me to write Nexus, which is why it's Nexus the CIA and political assassination. How does that really happen most of the time or did happen most of the time?
1: Well, here's and, here's the reason yeah. why this is so important, though, Larry, because I, and and I it almost it might sound to you like I'm just beating a dead horse here, but let me make this very clear. There are people that often say, "Okay, so we know about a CIA agent and, you know, usually that's a problematic word because sometimes they're an agent, sometimes they're an asset, sometimes they're just in play. Uh but either way, we, we assume they're correct so far in their statement. They say, Okay, so CIA agent A doesn't matter who they are, uh, somehow it follows and within ten words or so, what do you hear? Alan Dulles. And I go, Yeah. Yeah, well, just because Alan Dulles was the you know, the head of the CIA at the time. Does not necessarily follow that Alan Dulles had any interactivity with this individual? Um, Or if they did, it doesn't mean that it would have been about this. I mean, in some cases, it's like, look, here's a guy who's working in uh, London, right? And we know he was working in London. Okay. So how do we tie that directly to he's got any contact with Alan Dulles at all? You don't know that automatically simply because Dulles is in charge. You have to show that. You have to give a reasonable explanation. And obviously, we can't show every single communication and track it all down because, you know, it's not like we're using uh, uh, cell phones, (laughs) you know, at the time. There's a lot of things that are going to be missing, either purposely or just by the nature of the situation. But either way, you have to logically draw a line here. Just because Dulles is here, just because Uh, you know, some of these other people, uh, you know, here's the head of, uh, you know, the chief of operations for this hemisphere. And it's like, yeah, but you're telling me that he's in contact with somebody from a different hemisphere. And that's problematic. Now, it doesn't mean it didn't happen. It just means you have to show me how that happens, because it doesn't necessarily follow that, you know, Alan Dulles has shook everybody's hand. It doesn't necessarily follow that Angleton knows everybody at Mexico City. It doesn't necessarily follow. I mean, in some cases, maybe it does, but it doesn't necessarily automatically follow. And people do this all the time where it's like, well, of course. And then they'll jump agencies even and say, well, if Dulles knew, Hoover knew. And it's like, um, okay, different creatures, you know, like, but they're all part of the national security state. And I'm like, listen, I understand the idea of the uniform national security state, especially with the way things are now, but considering the time period, your assertion requires something else because you can't just assume it. You know, it's like saying, well, President Kennedy knew when Queen Elizabeth was doing this, not really. You know, because they're in charge of two different countries, they're the heads of the government, uh, ostensibly, it doesn't mean that they were in communication at that time. Doesn't mean the information was being shared at that time. Doesn't mean, you know what I mean? It's like, you can't just say, well, these people are on the same level, so therefore. You you have to show me how that works. Otherwise, you're just speculating and really poorly. You know, it, it's, it's not that easy is all I'm saying. So when you're dealing with a nexus and the fact that it is a 3D model, because, you know, the one problem with that string thing, like you said, is even though these are three-dimensional objects, you're not dealing with a three-dimensional thought process. You're not allowing for the fact that, yes, indeed, somebody was a close associate, but maybe they had no working relationship. Maybe they were a close personal friend who knew everything because that's the kind of person they were. They confided in them. But you have to examine that relationship to even get a hint at what was going on. And you know, it's like, well, this person lived near this person. I mean, the silly assertion I made before on this show, it's like saying that since I was not far from the events in New York City on 9-11, I'm somehow associated to it. And truth is, I was not far. from what happened in New York City, but I had nothing to do with it. So were millions of other people. You know, my proximity is not proof of anything except that I was there. Anyway, I'm just saying you, you, you know where I'm going with this, right?
2: Oh absolutely. And what I what I do and what fell out of the research and what is in Nexus is a discussion of the fact that there are really two levels within the CIA where political assassination occurs. One level is the, the level that people kind of assume. It's like, okay, the director of uh, the CIA uh, authorizes a project, the the president of the United States tells the CIA director to sanction a project. Uh, and I, I give examples of those, the first example some of the first example that I go into in great detail is, is Guatemala uh, and how assassination entered the picture there and how, from the bottom up. It wasn't like the president said, assassinate, uh, remove, and assassinate the, the president of Guatemala. He didn't say that. But interestingly enough, from the bottom up, from the people that the CIA was working with, the thought of political assassination spread upwards to the level in Guatemala that both the director of the CIA and the head of the State Department were sanctioning political assassination. And actually in the book, the nice thing about it when you go back that far in history is there there were a lot of documents, actually mostly from the State Department, that show those dialogues. And everybody, nobody was bashful about it. It was so early in the cold war that they weren't even bashful in talking about it there was no they circulated memos they circulated lists that's when the, the term blacklist came into being it's like well when we do this when we make this revolution occur by the way we need to kill off you know all the communists in the government or all the populists in the government all the people that are lobbying for agriculture against united fruit i we need to make them go away. And and that was that's in the memos. Now, after Guatemala, that sort of sort of conversation <laughs> really doesn't occur. I think everybody are like, oh, wait a minute, we shouldn't really be talking about that sort of thing. But what I do in Nexus is, is to discuss that level when sanctioned assassination projects come up. But I also discuss the other level of when what I would call operational assassinations come into being, and those don't start at the president's level or the director's level. Those start at the case officer level, and I think we often often miss that, and that's because case officers are the people that are working with the surrogates. They're working with the, the revolutionaries. I mean, if we're trying to do regime change, Uh, we're working with somebody locally in the country that wants to do regime change. And generally their vision of things is, well, the fastest way we can make this work with the least risk to us is to kill the sucker. And they come to their case officer with these proposals. And if the case officer has the right attitude or the case officer isn't aggressive in turning them down, or literally if the case officer doesn't say anything, then I present instances where those assassinations either happen, or they're actually encouraged. They don't happen because the CIA doesn't conduct them. CIA officers don't conduct them. CIA surrogates con- conduct them because they're getting support of various kinds and they just fold that into their activity. So right now this covers both of those levels,
1: right? Now here's the thing about this too. It's not necessarily a clear black and white cut and dry division between it went from top up or bottom up because I don't remember if you covered these, but I I bet they got mentions at some point here. Uh, If you think about what happened with Lumumba in the Congo and you examine also what happened with d m and New in Vietnam, you have varying things going on here. I mean, the result's the same. There is regime change. <laughs> but, uh, you know, y- y- you have different things going on. Sometimes things are working from the bottom up and the top down. Sometimes there is, you know, in the case of like uh, uh, the situation with Lodge there in Vietnam, where, you know, th- there's the president pretty much trying to tell him, Hey, look, uh, don't let this happen, <laughs> you know, and uh, I, I mean, I know I'm very much dumbing this down for everybody, but the fact is that there, there was, you know, a mixed message going on, and then, oops, well, I guess something went wrong with them, uh, you know, and the same thing with, uh, with Lumumba, except, well, there were local assets that were definitely aggressively in play in the Congo, which led to what happened to him. Now, is that a CIA-led assassination per se? I leave it to your judgment. But again, you have these different things going on where there are different assets in play. And because of that, there are different places from where the orders have come from. And sometimes it's, you know, look, operationally what I've got to do is achieve this And maybe political assassination is not the achievement. It's simply a device for the achievement. Uh, In other cases, it seems to have been a focus. And, you know, whether you're talking about Chile or Guatemala or uh, the Congo or Vietnam, there's a variety of things that can go on here. It's not a simple answer like, okay, so the guys at the ground level absolutely are behind it, although sometimes it is. Uh, But in some cases, there's a mixture of things happening. Something simultaneous, and you know, I dare say, occasionally not even known. You know, like in the case of the radio station attack and all that in Vietnam, uh, you've got situations that I, I swear that there are people operationally appearing to not have any knowledge of other operations that are going on, and uh, yet they they appear to be in charge of the uh, you know the kill team. Uh, It's all kinds of weird things going on, right?
2: Yeah, and I think probably the best detailed example we have of that comes from the Congo and the Lumumba situation, which I actually write more detail about in in Denial than Nexus. But Mm -hmm. that's a perfect example because you had two things going on. There there literally was a sanctioned operation going on from top down, okay? Mm -hmm. Uh, The director... Gives an assignment to someone, and and it's a fascinating thing because this individual gets the assignment to to assassinate Lumumba, and and turns to one of of the CIA's famous tools, which is poison. Uh, and I, you know, and so he starts setting up a program to get poison produced, to get it into the Congo, deliver it, and and poison Lumumba. Okay, so he's running that track, and that's. That's very compartmentalized. The 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 people in the field don't even know that's going on until one day somebody shows up with a poison and it's like, oh, geez, okay. That whole track just falls apart. It's inept. It's They have no experience in doing that, really. They have no assets in the field. Um, but what they also do is they also assign a staff officer in the field to go organize an assassination, or organize regime change. And that guy starts working with surrogates and does several different activities. He puts out a bounty. He puts out a kidnap bounty. He's got a bounty out for killing Lumumba. He's got a bounty out for kidnapping him. He's basically pursuing the track of, let's get this guy out of power. Let's isolate him. Let's move him off the table.
1: And or that wonderful term that he... Yeah, that wonderful term neutralized, one way or another, yep. right? <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Sorry. And that no, is no.
2: the crack that succeeds because he ends up getting him broken out of custody, kidnapped, and in the hands of the people that ultimately kill him. So you've got two, oper- two different levels, one being directed with a poison program that mm-hmm. doesn't work, compartmentalized from this political action slash assassination effort that's going on in country. And and I've got to say, basically, again, over and over again, what I find is when the field case officers are working with surrogates, mm-hmm. um, assassinations tend to happen more frequently because the surrogates have none of the limitations, restrictions They don't worry about things that Headquarters might worry about They just want to get somebody dead mm-hmm. And we find that In many places the Dominican Republic, Chile um, when, the, when The field officers handed off The surrogates, somebody dies
1: Yeah, in most Cases, but let's not assume They have a thousand percent batting Average here, because You know, Fidel Castro okay just saying here you have an instance where there was poisoning kidnapping uh you know assassination plots uh, undermining uh, biological warfare against their resources on and on and on and the guy dies of natural causes I mean just saying many decades after those operations were in play so not always a absolute when they throw out a net but they do throw out a pretty interesting wide net that has uh, maybe more than one kind of rope tied in it, don't they?
2: Well, they do, and I think I have to say also there are instances when they get in their own way. Uh, mm-hmm. When they have when operations are compartmentalized to the extent that they step on each other, no, they, they certainly don't have a 100% batting record. I would say in most cases what I was trying to communicate is their surrogates, if they're in a position to operate, uh, are more effective. In Cuba, unfortunately, the CIA stepped over its own feet year after year after year to the point being it's like we all know they're coming. You know, there was no element of surprise. If, quite frankly, what we do know now is that it's very likely that the first poison attempt against Castro hmm. might well have worked if the CIA had not, had not basically put under house restraint the people that were supposed to deliver the poison. Uh, <laughs> yeah. we, we did not know that then, but now now that we know the real, real level of detail, it's sort of like, well, okay. Um, but no, you're right, Chuck, it doesn't always work. But I guess that's what, all I'm really trying to say, to say is that in Nexus, basically, I, I examined both tracks. One is how things work with a sanction project that's coming from the top down. And alternatively, how things sometimes come to happen when field officers are engaged with surrogates.
1: Well, and that's the other thing is, as we've discussed several times, sometimes those surrogates are uh, native criminal elements. And when you utilize native criminal elements, sorry, they're not necessarily CIA trained. And you get a variety of results, right? So there's that. And I'm not saying everybody's a criminal element. Even when they utilize, you know, the uh, more uh, conventional business assets to collect data and all this kind of stuff. Uh, I mean, there are a variety of results when you're using assets and surrogates as opposed to your own people, your own team you send in, which is more like a military operation. And that brings up another thing here, which... Yes, I am thinking about In Denial as well, um, which, you know, if you're listening to us right now and you don't have In Denial uh, telling you now, Nexus and In Denial would not be a bad pair uh, of Larry Hancock's books if you're starting out, for sure, Um, because uh, it actually covers kind of some of the same stuff, but it's not overlap or repetition. I mean, I'm just saying, it, it gives you a lens into both things. You know, if you take a look at uh, what's in there and uh, even the key tagline from what it is I run for the ad here uh, about, you know, why it is that covert operations uh, were were being conducted by the U.S. and other countries are doing better with it now than we are, basically. I'm paraphrasing. Um, (laughs) You know, that's another thing going on is that uh, not only might the CIA or other covert teams be tripping over themselves and tipping their hands, But, you know, on occasion we might run into allies and adversaries who have programs running (laughs) that, you know, cause uh, a whole bunch of variables to emerge in circumstances. Um, And your surrogates, if you don't have absolute control of them, you know, maybe you want a kidnapping, but you get a killing. Like, that's the impression I get from the, the, the Moomba situation is that at a certain point, yeah, there was a contract basically out there. There was bounties, as you said, uh, and it it becomes a little confusing. Now, if there was a more focused operation to just, uh, you know, snatch him and, uh, you know, disappear him somewhere and not necessarily kill him, um, you know, you might not have had these – really, it was a messy misadventure. If you look – I mean, a lot of people don't look into the Congo – But you rightly reference it because I think it 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 shows, you know. Look, the job got done eventually, but the directionality of that and the and the uh, coherence of the operation is you know questionable, despite the fact that it, in in my estimation, succeeded uh, based on what it was they were looking to do. And I'm trying to look at this objectively. Uh, You know, obviously, I think it's terrible that regime change is something that you know our government does, but. Uh, you know what am I going to do I'm not in control <laughs> it, I'm just it, analyzing it as somebody looking at operationally how successful is it how cleanly was it done how efficiently was it done Uh is a big messy thing and and I point out again that the whole thing that happened in Vietnam you know DM and Nu showing up trying to flee the country and then getting uh, you know dumped out after somebody riddled their bodies with, with bullets I don't think that was the main plan <laughs> um, but it happened you know, uh, and and there you go. Sometimes when you have surrogates, there are unknowns in play there too. You know, your surrogates can hire people, and you're supposed to know about all that, but <clears throat> maybe you don't, and maybe they've got a different agenda. Some of the people they hire, and maybe sometimes your hand gets tipped. And I think in Cuba, there was uh, enough mixed loyalties, and I'm bouncing all over the place because each one of these situations, in truth, is unique, and yet. You're still kind of laying out In this book, Nexus um, The commonality Of these very divergent Sort of uh, operations And results, in my mind um, And That's that's a difficult job So, I, I mean As you're writing this, and as you said You did it piecemeal, you know, uh, over time And this and that how, how did you pull this together Into a, a, a coherent well, explanation, because all of your books are coherent. Everything Larry writes is, is easily understood. It takes you from place to place, gives you examples, explains operational details without, like, jamming every single detail down your throat, uh, and yet is still detailed enough that you can understand the nuances. You know, you might not be a, a first-class botanist by the time you're done reading Larry's books, but you know about the leaves and the trees in the forest, okay? And that's... Well ahead of what a lot of other people do. So, um, anyway, how did you pull this together to explain it? Go ahead.
2: Basically, and it's the same way I do almost every book because of the history orientation. I did it chronologically. Uh, Mm -hmm. I examined assassination from the very beginning. You know, uh, the CIA's first involvement with assassinations was in Iran, and the second involvement was in Guatemala. And so I, I proceed and and look at the actual individuals who were, now we, we now know, and we have the documents uh, and some of the oral history, who were involved in those decisions. For example, uh, Tracy Barnes uh, and Richard Bissell mm-hmm. were actually involved in making the decisions and authorizing surrogates uh, in Iran to start with, to do things like, uh, like assassination and, and, and removals, you know, it's sort of like, well, this Iranian officer is sympathetic to the Russians. We need to remove him from the picture. Uh, and they took that task and, and gave the sanction to do it. And and they did it through surrogates. They did it with poison. Uh, they did it with kidnapping um, they did the same thing in Guatemala they actually, those two men became <laughs> known as anecdotally as being in charge of life expectancies they, they were referred to as like these are the guys if, if somebody recommends something that looks like it's going to lead to assassination we need to get their blessings mm. and sometimes they stepped over each other in one instance barnes actually approved now this is fascinating barnes approved a plan to crash an airliner in which fidel castro was going to be traveling
3: Mm -hmm. uh
2: and it would have been i mean you're going to take down an airliner and all the passengers and everybody okay fine barnes approved it when bissell found out about it he canceled it um Chronologically speaking, you can kind of trace the adventures of those two over several years and see how those decisions are being made, where they come from within the community. They all occur within the Plans and Operations Directorate, so you can focus into what part of the CIA is making the decision. Um, And this is occurring down inside the agency. This is not... I mean these these guys are fairly senior officers but we're not talking about directors or assistant directors so I I trace it through chronologically and actually end up with with following their careers their roles in the Cuba project for example from 1959 and 1960 trace them through several years and that, en- that enables me to sh- show how these this is this is being conducted within the agency. What level is it occurring? Who's involved? Who's making the decisions? Who's recommending it? It's, uh, and we find it becomes repetitive. And I think that's one of the things that is helpful in understanding it. The, the concept of a blacklist of essentially a target list of people that would be taken out during regime change surfaced first in Guatemala yet we see it happen again during the Cuba project. Right. And uh, there's a list made, and we can now point that out. They, uh, for example, you and I both have heard the term Operation 40. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's used in a lot of ways, but that was essentially the training and development of a group of, of Cuban anti-Castro volunteers to go in as the new security force, uh, assuming a successful overthrow of Castro, and they would be the new intelligence organization with, on the island, but they would also be the cleanup group. They would hold a blacklist, and they would make sure that the Castro primary communist players and Soviet-centered players within the regime were taken off the table. And I think we can probably assume that meant not... You know, not given seaside resorts to retire to. Um, yeah, probably
1: so, not so given, to, you know, one-way tickets to uh, Florida. Uh, no. <laughs> uh, so and, and so that's, to answer your yeah.
2: question, it, it's a chronological treatment. So after, you know, one or two or three of these operations, you begin shaking your head and going, oh, okay, so that's how that works.
1: Well, right, and that sounds simple to the average person, but let's remember a few other things. Now, you can't just send in a brand-new intelligence agency uh, because they're part of the overthrow, and boom, your job's over. You know, there, there are what, what, I, what I would consider the gray list and the white list, too. And the gray list might be people that would cooperate with them, that they could utilize, that were part of the uh, establishment beforehand. Uh, and the white list might be people who are just natural allies, and you have to put all those into consideration. You know, you can't just go in with a scorched earth policy, although on occasion it almost looks like sometimes they did, um, depending on the circumstance. But, you know, even when you go for scorched earth, hardly anybody can ever actually achieve it. You know what I mean? There, 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 is, a, uh, <clears throat> there is a nuance there as well, where now we, we want people that are going to be friendly to the idea of regime change, even though they were part of the regime and others that want to be part of the new regime, you know, and you got to bring them all in because obviously we're not going to supply all the personnel necessary. Uh, you know, we being, if I was the CIA, uh, you know, the, the anti Castro Cubans are one element of it, but then you need the, uh, the people that just don't really care about who was in charge. Maybe they just want power. They might be useful. You got other people that, uh, felt left out of the system. They're part of the rebellion, so to speak. But you encourage them to step in and do some of the work, because after all, uh, we can't just send in full-on armies to do this. I mean, that's uh, that's a passe idea. We gotta, you know, leverage what's there first before we send in, you know, our other people. And Iran is uh, is is an interesting example of that when it comes to Mossadegh and what went on. You know, um, and, and you know, another name comes up here, which uh, I know that you have uh, some familiarity with. I'm being sarcastic. Um, David Attlee Phillips, at one point, I, I think he was uh, one of the guys who gave a very interesting oral history where he brings in like all the countries that we mentioned here into a uh, discussion about, well, we made some changes, you know, <laughs> and. Uh, <laughs> And I was just thinking of that as you were speaking, because it almost sounded like part of what he was saying, except, you know, his was all innocuous. Well, some people decided there was a time for a change. So individuals like myself and others came in and believe it, there's a lot of other people that are not known. uh, You know, And I'm not telling you this, Larry, I'm telling the listener. There's a lot of other people that are not known that were essential to these operations for sure. But see, when you have some of these marquee names Who make statements like that Who are given oral history They become catch-alls And they're not necessarily the catch-all You know, again The people that you're talking about Like Barnes I mean, these are people that hardly ever get covered In, you know, the big conspiracy documentary Or the superficial book out there That tries to say, well You know, Alan Dulles, CIA He got fired, that's it You know, (laughs) You know, one of those things. Um,
2: well, and, and I think you're bringing up a, a really important part here, and it's a group and a segment that gets totally ignored. And and let me illustrate that because, as you, you said, you know, you, you have a black list, but you also probably have a gray list. And the question is, who prepares those lists? And the mm-hmm. the answer to that is counterintelligence prepares the list. Right now, counterintelligence operates comes under operations okay very important but counterintelligence spends its life doing everything from innocuous stuff like reading the newspapers of the country that's being targeted to doing interviews with the exiles and expatriates and they prepare these lists you know who is key to this regime who are the movers and the shakers they're not in the military they're political And they prepare these other lists, not just black lists, but white lists and gray lists. And the the interesting thing about that is generally in the conspiracy discussions, counterintelligence gets left out of the whole equation. But if, if you really want to look at what happens in the real world, what happens is that the list that they prepare... Innocent, I mean, they're doing their day job. This is what they're supposed to do. There's, there's nothing that says this list is going to be used for anything particular. Where things really get nasty is when that list gets handed over to the surrogates. Mm-hmm. Because the surrogates, uh, in most cases, really, they're if we're talking regime change, they're looking at a revolution. And they don't like the people in charge. And when they get one of those lists... Um, the blacklist tends to escalate exponentially, and suddenly everybody that's on it can can be at risk. And one of the places that you really see that, the place that doesn't get talked enough about, and that's in Indonesia, mm-hmm. and in the CIA operations in Indonesia. Well, the CIA spent several years trying to do regime change in Indonesia. It it failed. The CIA's project failed, but they spent several years building these lists, counterintelligence list of, you know, uh, who who essentially they considered to be the opposition, who was who was too radical, communist, uh, populist, whatever, the other guys. What happened, sadly, is that that list grew into thousands and thousands of people. The CIA canceled operation because it literally failed and was exposed. However, a couple of years later, a revolutionary clique within the Indonesian army did manage a successful revolution. They took that list, and literally tens of thousands of people got killed. Hmm. And those we're not talking about a blacklist. That was like everybody that, you know, name was on that list could have been thousands literally thousands mm-hmm. and so un- unfortunately when all that was traced back they even found the people in the counterintelligence who said oh yeah we made out the list and we gave the list to those guys because when we did they were helping us work in a revolution against the Saharno regime mm-hmm. you know we're just doing our job you know with we- 5,000 people got killed, sorry, but, you know, we we did our job. Um, and there can be terrible repercussions from the work that counterintelligence does. So I, I bring that up because in Nexus and, and later in Tipping Point, as we will discuss, counterintelligence can have a big role in enabling political assassination when the people that are involved don't even realize what may happen with the work they're
1: doing. Well, and that's the other thing, is the uh, the unforeseen consequences, right? Uh, you know, or, or the possibly foreseen consequences, depending on who you talk to. You know, like the stuff that went on in Central and South America, you know, the death squads and all that, it, was that the intended consequence or not? You know, is the rise of the Khmer Rouge something that people should look more deeply into? There there's a whole lot of stuff that goes on as a result of these operations, uh, after. You know, sometimes these things are very short sighted and other times maybe not so. Uh it depends. You know, the the misadventures in Iraq, let's go more modern. <laughs> okay, uh and, and what went on there regarding intelligence collection and the the you know, the, the torture scandals and all that stuff. I mean and, and really a lot of that's still as yet unknown, in my mind. Um, and, and the unintended and intended consequences of different operations. Okay? I mean, these are things that you can see, but you can't necessarily parse them out um, generally without going very deep into the subject. And there you go. Indonesia is hardly ever discussed by anybody but it is highly consequential and w- w- all along I mean these agencies are supposed to be learning from this too uh, but well again see uh, see in denial um, and uh, go, go into that aspect of it but not you Larry I want to stick to Nexus because um, you know ultimately this is part of what we need to look at when it comes to the JFK assassination in my mind because Look at all these things going on. You know, didn't happen in a vacuum. That's something that that anybody can agree to. Uh, You know, what happened in in November of 1963. And, oh, by the way, you know, three weeks before, there's that whole thing in Vietnam as well. Um, You know what I'm saying? There were plenty of things ongoing at that time. And even the idea that maybe, you know, an old idea but uh, still has some validity to it in my mind, this concept that perhaps an operation had been turned into another direction. You know, that's another thing that goes on, is you could have an operation and somebody who is intelligent enough to grab enough of the reins can direct it somewhere else other than what it was intended. Um, And that's another thing that comes up, and meanwhile, we haven't really even talked about Kennedy here in this whole first hour, which we're almost done with. Um, and I know we're going to in the next hour, but where, where should we leave it before we get into some of the uh, more detailed elements of Nexus?
2: Well, I, I think the summation is that, and that's the way Nexus is laid out, about the first half of the book really looks at What is the nexus of political assassination within the agency? You know, Mm -hmm. how, how do these things happen? As we just talked about, they happen from two discrete levels. Um, and then the, the thought is once you've, once you've kind of gotten that under your belt, then you need to move that forward to 1962, 1963 and say, all right, we understand how it happened previously. How could it, could it, how could it, if we assume it did, how could it have happened to actually target the president of the United States? Mm-hmm. How, how can this sort of thing, I, I think most people in the conspiracy community assume that it's like the number one track is, well, it came, as you said, Chuck, from the top down. You know, because that's the way it always comes. Mm-hmm. Uh, it comes from the director. It comes from the national security Institution as it were. These, these people get together and talk and they sanction an assassination and that's what happened to JFK. Mm-hmm. And they really neglect the more common activity is that it actually occurs down within the organization. So basically the transition I'd make and what we should move to is move it into 1963 and say, looking at, looking at both the top and the bottom, how does it appear that it did happen under the scenario that the impetus came from within the CIA that led to the murder of the president. And when I say within the CIA, that means someplace (laughs) inside the inside does not imply like some overall it came from the CIA as this big indefinite blob.
1: Yeah, it doesn't mean that somebody at Langley was, you know, uh, sending cables to Dallas. I mean, that's not what happened. <laughs> you know what I mean? It, it, it's just not not the way it goes. Uh,
2: <laughs> and and not, not, to, not to cast any stones, but there, there's been discussion lately that, oh, what was really su- suspicious about November 22nd, 1963, was that Alan Dulles was at Langley. Now, Mm -hmm. i got to tell you, during the Bay of Pigs, Alan Dulles displaced himself outside of the United States, so he wouldn't look responsible for anything. And I just have a hard time thinking that he would suddenly decide, as the guy in charge of killing the president, that he's going to go to Langley that day. I'm sorry. Mm
1: -hmm. No, but on the other hand one could say that his activities with the Warren Commission show that he was more than pleased to assist with what I would define as a cover-up. Maybe, maybe you wouldn't, but maybe you would. Uh, and and more than happy to participate in that actively, highly actively. As a matter of fact, more active than any of the other Warren Commission commissioners. <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh, uh, oh
2: I, and I would, agree, I would agree with that. I, there is no doubt in my mind it's just, you, you have to ask, the question would be, was he covering up something that he did, or was he covering up something that could have destroyed the agency that he had built? And
3: there you
1: go.
2: It, it could be
3: either.
1: <laughs> no, that that is the truth, but when you look at that, it's like, listen, and one thing, as you and I have discussed before, does not necessarily absolutely lead to the other. I think also it's educational, by the way, to look at what we commonly refer to as the assassination guide, <laughs> because when was that developed? You you, you know this. I mean, we don't need to go into it in depth, but I'm just saying if you just uh, do yourself a search on it or you listen to some of the shows that I've done on it before, um, quite frankly, that information is all very interesting. And look at when it was developed, right, in the 50s. Uh, and and you know don't put anything on paper, but here it is a paper document. I always love that. Uh, you know, it's just literally that's true. By the way, in in this guide, it's like you know do not commit uh, your operational details or guides to paper, and you're reading it. Uh, all right. Anyway,
2: and it's, a, and it's a training tool. It's like yeah. okay, we don't endorse political assassination, and we never order anybody to do it. But
1: here's the manual. But, here, but here's how it's done. <laughs> Just so you know, like uh, I, I, oh man. Anyway, it's it is entertaining. I advise you to look into it for yourselves, guys. But tonight we're not discussing that per se, <laughs> though. Though it might be relevant if you're really looking to dig into the topic, but the uh the book nexus by larry hancock is what we're discussing continuing on with the larry hancock collection which we're almost done with all the books and gotta tell you it's i'm I'm a looking forward to it but b feeling like well that's going to be the definitive set on this doesn't mean we're not going to have larry hancock back on if he's willing to but uh but this is where it goes so nexus a very very important key book in the larry hancock collection on the ocelli effect and one more mention of larry-hancock.com over there his blog his books explore that website and uh we're going to explore the book nexus a little more in the next hour stick around we'll be right back
0: Like history, real history, that you were never taught in schools. Why? The Vietnam War, nuclear bombs and nation building in Southeast Asia. By author Mike Swanson, with new documentation never seen before. That will open your eyes to events that led up to this. Why? The Vietnam War, nuclear bombs and nation building in Southeast Asia, 1945 through 1961. Get your copy today at Amazon.com. Why? The Vietnam War. By author Mike Swanson. WallStreetWindow.com Gold. Silver. The stock market. WallStreetWindow.com Perhaps you're invested deeply. Perhaps you're not in deep enough. Maybe you're thinking about getting started wallstreetwindow.com Wall Michael Swanson the brilliant author of The War State understood
1: these trends professionally for many years and now he gives you the benefit of his knowledge
0: wallstreetwindow.com Wall Street Wall go there now go there now go there now In Denial Secret Wars with Air Strikes and Tanks by Larry Hancock Secret Wars became a staple of U.S. covert operations and are still happening today. Larry Hancock's book, In Denial, rips the cover off many of them. Using new files, it exposes things about the Bay of Pigs that no one has ever written about before. It shows why it really failed and why the United States did not learn from it. Secret Wars became a staple of U.S. covert operations and are still happening today. It also shows why other countries today are doing secret operations with more success. This is the book that puts what some want to deny into the light. In Denial. Secret Wars with Air Strikes and Tanks. Larry Hancock. For more information, go to larry-hancock.com. Pick up your copy of In Denial at Amazon.com in digital or physical form. Learn from our rapidly repeating
4: guest break, my brother. That's where i come from. I'll say all wow, get a bitch and now the most underrated
1: voice is all in all media. All Chuck O'Celle. Second hour of the O'Celli event continues now here at O'Celli.com. But no matter who you are, where you are, when you are, we welcome you as a listener. So uh I just want to say really quickly that the uh the 2000 show which is coming up on june 29 is coming together interestingly in my estimation uh we now have the uh possibility that jack Ludd might appear on there (laughs) and uh uh freeman fly is allegedly going to show up so this will be an eclectic night, I'm certain, um, and there may indeed be some, uh, I, I, I know everybody was like, which JFK person is he going to bring on? I'm not going to torture Larry Hancock with this, uh, <laughs> but Larry has been an integral part of uh, many, many shows over the course of the past uh, several years, and there's a good reason why. His work is extremely solid, and he, he's he's very kind to me and puts up with me. So I appreciate it, Larry. <laughs> and uh, I'm more than happy to uh, do this complete series on your collected works, the Larry Hancock Collection. And tonight we are still, uh, uh, still in the midst of it, but only one more main episode left. I proposed a catch-all kind of uh, episode at the end, maybe an extra one. We'll see what happens, but uh, tonight we're focused on Nexus. (laughs) And so far, excuse me, so far, uh, we've gone through the many mechanisms. What is a Nexus? Why does it work? Why does it need to be studied in a three dimensional fashion as opposed to a two dimensional one? All of that, some in and out details of how things work from the top down, the bottom up, and sometimes a combination of. Different directions, (laughs) you know, uh, different uh, trajectories, top down, bottom up. Okay, maybe some stuff in the middle, surrogates, so on and so forth. Yeah, you need a three or four dimensional model to follow this. But looking back and looking at what was and what is and what's yet to come, we've gotten to the point where it's time to talk about 1963. And not just about the Kennedy assassination, but. We're going to have to touch on the Kennedy assassination now. And it's very important. And Nexus is uh, is a book I recommend for you to understand the nature of many things that I'll tell you right now. Most authors skip over this stuff and don't explain to you how things work. Larry, very kindly, does take the time to lay it out and make it understood. So... Again, Larry, really grateful that you're doing this, but now we got to go to 1963 and talk about that thing you never talk about. <laughs> 1963. So, Larry, uh, yes. go, go go ahead. I know, I know. You know, it, it, you don't really know much about 1963. So, i I'm, I'm, can, can you read sarcasm in my voice? No, I'm yeah, sorry. I got it. Okay. Yes, yes. All
2: right. And I would be there. You know. Well, anyway. But okay. Um.
3: Yeah. I I think.
2: Once, once people have read the, the first half of the book and, and see this pattern that emerges, then then what I really did with Nexus was to try to say, all right, can we overlay that pattern on 1963? Let's look at what's happening at the top of the CIA. Let's look at what's happening down in the field. Uh, and, and obviously the field would— would involve, I mean, as far as the CIA is concerned, and it has operations worldwide, there are things going on in Vietnam, there are things going on in Europe, uh, they're primarily though, al- although most of the energies, most of the operational energies, and as we said, as we said in the, f- the first part of this show, assassinations occur at the operational level, whether they're directed Enabled They just happen because the surrogates get carried away That's where things happen Now where was most of the activity In 1963 for the CIA Well interestingly enough uh, People might suppose it was in Vietnam Because we tend to kind of fixate on Vietnam um, JFK had actually Taken covert operations in Vietnam Covert operations against the North away from the cia mm-hmm. and handed it over to the the military to the joint chiefs under an, a program called switchback and so the cia was in the process of hand handing over its operations to the military and military is trying to figure out how to do that sort of stuff um and the same thing was going on in regard to cuba uh in the summer of 1963 JFK assigned the Joint Chiefs a project to report back on how they would assume covert operations against Cuba, uh, assuming that that had to happen. As as we'll see, and as I discuss in the book, matters in the Kennedy administration in 1963 were complex and to somewhat uh, somewhat chaotic because Kennedy was intelligent enough and pragmatic enough to be pursuing multiple tracks. Right. Uh and different tracks, some military, some covert, some political, and which can be confusing by the way and dangerous and to, in some ex, to some extent. But well, and there's also so the, the Well, is-
1: the other thing is that the public face of it could also be extremely confusing because as we well know, in the weeks leading up to Kennedy's death, he makes public statements about some of these things that are operationally occurring that conflict with reality and then conflict with each other because he's making different points at different times. And I think it's necessary to mention in here, and I want you to put it in context, obviously, that on November 2nd or 3rd of 1963, guess what happens? The, the South Vietnamese president and his brother are, you know, for lack of a better term assassinated, I mean massacred, murdered, I don't know pick a term, but that happened, and you know, again, as you said, there's already this this switchback thing happening, there's the, uh, you know, conflict with the State Department representative who was in Vietnam at the time uh, where it seems like, you know, this guy's not taking my orders basically, and we have tape of Kennedy angry about that um, And so th- there is a variety of things going on here. And we're just talking, I'm just talking about Vietnam, but there's a variety of things going on here. And so we got to place 1963 in its proper context in the right atmosphere to understand that not only was this encouragement of the anti-Castro Cubans going on and uh, JM wave happening, but there were very strange things happening in close proximity to texas when you're talking about mexico city because geographically that's fairly close you know um just saying there's a lot of things going on right larry i mean help me through that a little bit
2: and and we tend to isolate it i mean you can look at and and actually uh other authors have recently looked if you look at at the correspondence within the administration and the activity within the administration yeah, JFK, JFK, first of all, prefers political solutions. He even prefers neutrality, which he has pursued in Laos, and which at that point in time is, is hanging together fairly well. He prefers political solutions to conventional warfare. And there is no doubt that he's in pursuit of a political solution in Vietnam, pressuring the North with covert action, but he mm-hmm. wants a political solution and he wants a regime in place that will support that. Uh, in, if you look at his overall concerns, actually his overall concerns are about Europe and Berlin right. and the Soviet right. Union. So it's it's very complex we, we tend to obsess about one place or the other, but for the administration, it's everything at one time.
1: Well see, okay. now a, a live question comes in too, because everything at one time, now we got to get into something that just so happens the question is about, which is this idea that some people have put out there, which I disagree with, uh, regarding this, uh, well, there was an impending Cuban invasion being planned. Um, And some people think that might have happened in December had Kennedy not been killed in November. Um, Now, I do not Uh, support that point of view I'm aware of the fact that there were contingency plans but there, as I've stated on this show several times, there are contingency plans that exist today for the U.S. to invade Canada because there are contingency plans for everything that are constantly being revised, imagined -imagined. reimagined there there are people that that's their whole job to do that and now there are computers employed in doing that as well Um, just saying uh, and I don't find any satisfactory evidence to say that, you know, Kennedy had this, uh, any, any sort of uh, real aspiration to, uh, to have a conventional or even a covert invasion of Cuba on the table by the end of the calendar year in 63. At least the evidence doesn't support it in my mind. Now, some people have dug up contingency plans. I'm not going to mention names, but and built entire books around it. Uh, sometimes two. Anyway, um, it doesn't mean... I, 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 go ahead.
2: I think we can deal with that because we have enough actual documentation. Now, you can go to 1962, mm-hmm. summer 1962, and JFK orders and, and supports a major military exercise with commander chief Atlantic to... Uh, the exercise involves Marines. It, it's major process Mm -hmm. and the process is really to simulate a conventional invasion of Cuba okay that's where he is in 1962 basically it's sort of like if Mongoose does not work or in conjunction with mongoose, he's prepared and wants to have that option in hand Mm -hmm. after the missile crisis that goes away there's the contingency plans stay there and of course staff staff person's refresh those, that's their task, as you just described. But in the summer of 1963, his new tasking for the military is to take over and initiate a much more effective covert operations, because Mm -hmm. he's been convinced by his Secretary of Defense that the CIA is really not all that good at covert operations, they don't have the tools, the equipment, the training. Uh, And everything that's happening in the summer of 1963 suggests he's moving in the direction of military covert operation against Cuba, not a convention. There is just literally no sign of staging forces or any... You would have had to be working on positioning forces and assets for 90 days or 120 days in advance of anything in December, and that's not there. It it just isn't. Right. so we, there was a point in time 10 years ago, whatever, when, when you couldn't see everything we can see now where that might have been an option. I just don't see it as an option now because uh, we really know the other thing that he was doing. Okay, there's, right. we want to talk about chaos. So there's that. The military has been tasked to take over and embark on a major covert action process against Cuba if he orders it. So they're beginning those plans. We can see the plans. I mean, they're very serious. And they come out of the Joint Chiefs and Saxa. Okay. JFK is also, primarily through RFK, encouraging ongoing efforts to bring about regime change in Cuba with new projects called Amtron, Amworld, Amwhip uh, to... Create, stimulate an overthrow of Castro. But at the same time, as of October, November, he has initiated a brand new covert back channel dialogue with Cuba at Castro's initiative mm-hmm. on the possibility of a neutrality for Cuba, uh, Cuba making some promises about exporting his revolution, kicking out the Soviets. And resuming more or less normal relations with the U.S. So all of those are in process with different people at the same time. Right. And you know, compartmentalized to some extent. Uh, how you know? But if you look at it, all of those tracks are being discussed at once.
0: Right.
1: Well, and it's a key to bring up this back channel thing that starts happening on a couple of different levels. Uh, through different representatives uh, trying to uh, reach out to Castro personally, directly, and trying to uh, seek some level of cooperation, normalization. Again, this is something that was not necessarily known for a long time, uh, but has become obvious. And, you know, some people might say, well, look, that was just, you know, the cover, right? Trying to lull him into a sense of security. Uh, I get that, but I don't see the evidence for this imminent invasion. Uh, You know, again, outside of contingency plans, but I'll tell you that there are contingency plans to move the government to New Jersey if need be. You know, I mean, I'm just saying, (laughs) there's everything being imagined. What if stuff goes wrong, pretty much? Or what if we need to do something that we don't expect to do uh, in the next couple of months? How fast can we make it happen? And as you stated, If there was an imminent invasion that was being planned, we could see at this point in time, based on things that have been declassified, that the proper assets were in place. Now, the idea that we might need to insert the U.S. military uh, into Cuba, that contingency plan and that sort of planning looks like it was there. But again, the operational basis for that would have been in case we had a success with the regime change, right? So I'm, I'm just trying to make sure that we understand this correctly because, again, this keeps coming up. You know, oh, uh, you know, uh, sorry to even mention this, but the theory that, you know, oh, well, Bobby Kennedy didn't want to uh, expose the facts about the JFK assassination because he knew that his brother was going to invade. And the people that had him killed obviously had to kill him in order to avoid that invasion. And I go... Man, my head's spinning. It's just, the evidence is not there to support that theory. I'm sorry, yeah, go ahead. We have it in
2: two forms, Chuck. We actually, I mean, we have the documents on those contingency plans, Mm -hmm. and they're all very clear. They all introduce, basically, they're introduced with verbiage that says if, by some circumstance, there should be a revolution inside Cuba that would either replace castro or put him at risk here is the conventional response so it's it's contingent just as you said all the it's a contingency plan for a revolution against castro not just to go in and remove him right now now a year before it was we we're just going to flat go in and take him out but not 1963 the other thing about this cover if we did not have, and we do now have actually the telephone conversations between JFK and William Atwood, the, the people that are involved in this back channel thing, and JFK is going, you know, you're going to have to resign your position at the UN, you're going to have to do this and that, this is what, it clearly, he's serious about it. Mm-hmm. it it's not, okay, we're going to fake him out by doing it. No, he, it, it's... He's clearly very serious about it, and he is so serious about it that the CIA director is protesting. Right. The CIA director is writing memos saying, no, we don't trust him, don't trust him under any circumstances. You know, you don't have the CIA director pushing back against the president if this is a cover.
0: <laughs> right.
1: Right. No, no, I I agree. I just wanted to dispense with it because it came up in the in the uh, you know chat a question about being confused over the idea that there was an imminent invasion because many people had pushed this as the literal motive for the assassination. Like this is ah, what had to be done, and you know another problem there, not just the the lack of evidence, is that quite frankly assassinating JFK does not necessarily in and of itself assure that that would have stopped it anyway. You know, it falls apart on many levels is all I'm trying to say. There there is no guarantee that Johnson would have stopped the invasion. I mean, you know, you want to talk about somebody who would have uh, maybe been happy to invade Cuba if he had a, a great win in his hand, you know, or was presented this operation and said, look, we've already got everything in place to go in December and we can take out this commie. And uh you'll be a hero. I don't know. I, I, I think Johnson might have went along with it. Uh as opposed that, that to stopping. That
2: would have gotten him, him elected. That would have gotten him elected in sixty four a lot easier than what he chose to do in Vietnam.
1: Yeah. That that's what I'm thinking, but you know, again, it, it falls apart on a lot of different levels, is all I'm saying. So let's move ahead to what doesn't fall apart in nineteen sixty three and like you said, looking into it, you say to yourself, Okay Basically, let's let's objectively view, right? The CIA, the government knows we're, we're definitely involved in these regime changes and decapitating the organism, which I discussed with you during the break, where it makes perfect sense that these guys would have this idea of how do you seize power? Well, you get your hands on the reins and you take away the head. One way or another, you get it out of there so you can run stuff at least temporarily. And sometimes you use surrogates to do that too. Uh, which is my argument in Iran when it comes to the uh, re, uh, reinstatement of the Shah? You know, uh, even though it's the Shah's son uh, as opposed to the formerly deposed Shah, but either way, um, there, there, there is a lot that goes on, and you could say to yourself, "Well, look, we know how this works, and now we got to put it in this odd context." Like I said, because three weeks earlier. I, I forget if it's the second or third of November, and I think it's because it, there's a little bit of a give in the timeline in Vietnam. But um, you, you have Diem Nu assassinated, basically. Um, and there's a whole bunch of stuff going on there. You have the anti-Castro Cubans who are angry because, as people point out, Bay of Pigs failed. Castro's still there. They want him gone. Uh, I mean it's a whole thing. So continue on from there.
2: Yeah. I think let's, an interesting fact, because that's occurring at the same time. And you mentioned Vietnam. One of the fascinating pieces, because, you know, you kind of, what is the CIA doing in Vietnam? What are they doing in Cuba? Where's, where's the hot button? Where are they? Where's the level? You know, where do they have surrogates? What's happening? An interesting thing about Vietnam that kind of convinces you how, unstructured that was is you have the basically the head field officer in Vietnam and I was surprised to find this in the days and actually weeks before the DM coup and assassination, he was sending all kinds of letters to various places saying I need a military aircraft um, to get these guys out of the country. You know, I think the generals are going to do a coup. Uh, I don't think that they will be safe. This could go bad on us. And in each case, the military goes, well, you know, our first, our closest transport aircraft is in the Philippines. We don't have any of the, that type of air. We don't have aircraft with the range to do that in Vietnam. Um, and the ones that are there have missions. And he gets no response. So that, that just shows you how disconnected things were in Vietnam and it Mm -hmm. explains quite frankly how things rapidly went bad but it's like the CIA knows they needed to get these guys out of town, convince them and get them out of town and they can't even pull that off But so let's go to the place where there is the most actual CIA operational activity and that's Miami and it's against Castro where operations are still quite active and in fact they turn up Uh, in the late summer and fall and under Desmond Fitzgerald there are several new initiatives that are kicked off Um, there are new maritime missions being launched Uh, there are new covers being established the new the group maritime the the strange thing and again another picture of how chaotic it is is you've got this new project that RFK is supporting called Amworld which is the whole theory is to move all the action against Cuba offshore and support Cubans that are going to attack him from other locations, yet you have the CIA officers in Miami um, buying and setting up these motherships and buying all of these fast attack boats and starting to run sabotage missions with a group called uh, Commandos MBCs, which has the cover. But so, like... On one hand, you've decided, I've got to do everything from outside the U.S., but the people in Miami are running all those missions out of ports in Florida. It's hard to get more confused than that. And and, and the dangerous thing about that, of course, is you're confusing everybody that works with you. You're you're confusing the surrogates. The surrogates are, you know, in one hand, uh, some of the guys that have been working with you the longest, are involved with this commandos and MBC's mission or with the AMWRL mission. And the cover, I think, and this is a real indicator, the cover for the AMWRL mission, the head of the who's been selected by RK, Manuel Manuel Artime, is telling everybody that the United States has deserted them. The United States, in particular John Kennedy, is no longer supporting anti-Castro activities. Our uh, team is getting support from Europe and from South America, and he's starting this whole new initiative because JFK and the U.S. have betrayed them. Yet this is an op- this is the officially sanctioned operation of the CIA, and you've got this is very dangerous. You know when your own operation is telling the most activist Cuban exiles that this they have to join up because the United States and President Kennedy have betrayed them. It's hard to get more dangerous
1: than that. Well, and here's the thing. It, it actually means, in retrospect, when you look back at some of the public statements by Castro, where he's sounding kind of paranoid, um, he's not unjustifiably paranoid because <laughs> there are several things in motion coming at him uh, from different angles, and... He's making conflicting statements publicly. If you if you actually, you know, go back and read the translation of his statements uh, publicly at the time, sounds like he thinks people are coming at him from several different directions, and turns out he was right. He um, was right, and I,
2: I think the most, perhaps the most, in terms of his being right, I would say, of course, if you get to the end of Nexus and, and you follow my scenario
3: mm-hmm.
2: The uh, virtually the last thing he does is actually give a public warning to JFK mm-hmm. and I think he had some intelligence to suggest this that you know the United States had been trying to kill him and might still be trying to kill him but JFK himself was at risk because if the CIA, the, the people the Cuban exiles if the people they were working with trying to kill him ever began to distrust JFK, they could turn on him just as easily. Mm-hmm. And he actually issues a warning to JFK that he might be at risk from the CIA surrogates.
1: Right. And that is a very interesting point, which again, I, I don't think was, uh, you know, some people portray that as this great threat that he was posing uh, as though uh Hey, look, you know, you keep trying to get me. I'll get you, but that's not what he said. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's 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 a little more nuanced than that. And he's trying to say this situation can turn on you. Is the way I interpret what I what I've read and what I've listened to, what I've you know heard him say and had translated for me. Um, sounds to me like that's what he's saying. Okay, and he says it not once but several times in different ways. Um,
2: Absolutely, and and I think to confirm that, and the reason I think he's actually getting some intelligence of his own, this is at virtually the same time that JFK makes his trips to Florida, makes his trip to Florida, and the the Secret Service is advised and is so concerned about the exile community actually as a threat to JFK that they actually contact JM Wave and request help because there's very they're very concerned that there will be an attack on JFK when he goes to Miami. Right. So you've got the you've got the Secret Service hearing something, you've got the CIA hearing something, and you've got Castro hearing something all at the same time. And you we've even know we've got the FBI who is getting sources within the cuban exile community especially within dre saying you know these guys are talking about having to do something to jfk it's just coming from multiple directions all at the same time
1: right right and that's very important to remember here because you know a, a singular statement from fidel castro if that's all there was you know you could call it a lot of things you could say that it was uh an attempt to make a political point. You could say it was an attempt to defend himself. You could say a lot of things. But when you line it up with the reports from the agencies that are tasked with protecting the president, you line it up with, you know, the the best domestic intelligence that the FBI has to offer regarding this, it all starts to come together to say, you know, maybe this is actually the circumstance. So, Continue on. I mean, but there you go. There, There's a nexus of a certain level of intelligence that comes together to show you <laughs> the connectivity of the situation, right? Um, yeah,
2: and and it, um, just at that time, uh, the chronology is also important. That, that wasn't the situation in the spring. That wasn't... It was becoming the situation during the summer, and it was... It really... It, it reached a you know, a a culmination with the information about that back-channel negotiation starting to circulate. At at first, it's important to know, and I discussed this in Nexus, at first that back-channel contact was, JFK was doing it without advising anyone in the CIA. He was working completely within the State Department. And there's some actually some of the dialogue with the state department says you know if the cia finds them out about this it's just they're going to sabotage the whole thing because the cia will never agree to any kind of settlement you know they've been working for years to kill castro or it over they're they're never going to go along with this if we're going to make this happen we're going to respond to castro we have to keep it to ourselves and it goes so far as that jfk is is using cutouts at the U.N., cutouts with Lisa Howard, who's uh, a reporter at her apartment. And he's not telling the CIA about any of this, although there is reason to feel that the CIA may be learning about this by intelligence collection against JFK himself. That's another story that I discussed. But within three or four weeks, as as things proceed, as, as these... The meeting, first meeting between his representative was going to be in November. It was literally scheduled to be in the last week of November. Mm-hmm. At that point in time, the CIA does learn about it. He does share it with them. They start pushing back, they try to delay. But most importantly, we now have documents that show that they, have, they are passing this information about this back channel down to jam wave in Miami and actually on to Mexico City. Right. So the the CIA is actively, without telling Kennedy, of course, actively beginning to move against this negotiation because they're asking their assets to come up with plans to put the Cuban representatives under surveillance. And, you know, they're... They're not going to let the president proceed on his own. And the documents that are on that are very revealing, because quite frankly, there is no way in the world that the CIA director should have ever shared that information down the chain unless he himself was involved and had ideas of trying to thwart this negotiation.
1: Well, see, that's the thing is when people talk about, you know, the the impending invasion Uh, The evidence to show that there was an impending invasion doesn't exist. But what evidence does show is that there was an impending possibility of normalization. That there was an impending possibility of further action that wasn't about decapitating the regime. Maybe seeking to cooperate. And if one wanted to speculate, you could say, well... Maybe somebody needed to uh, make sure the assassination happens then to prevent that. If you want to focus on that, if you are so motivated that you believe that that is absolutely an essential thing, whether it's for national security or it's the Cuban exiles for their own purposes, or it is in vengeance for the mistreatment of other individuals that, uh, you know, again, Cuban exiles. Okay. Um, and, and, And here we go. If you want to talk about a possible motive, we got to stop this from happening, it sounds like to me. And you don't get to see this unless you line up things like the open source intelligence, the, uh, the, the, the communications that you're referencing here regarding why is the CIA director sharing information uh, that really is not on the need-to-know basis, so to speak, for certain people, unless it is necessary to accomplish something. Um. so you, you have to consider this at all times when you're laying these things out right and, and one of the
2: fascinating things to me is uh, along that track the CI director is clearly participating in obstruction
3: mm-hmm. okay
2: there's no doubt about that he's pushing back at his level against JFK saying you know we, we should have a we should do a uh, war game this. We should do this. We should do that. Don't respond to him now. Because we, we have to keep in mind, this was Castro's initiative. And Castro, when you look at the communications, is saying, I'll do whatever it takes. D- che Guevara, nah, he's not going to participate in this. It's going to be me and your representative and me and you. Mm-hmm. and so. This is something that Castro himself is willing to make a lot of sacrifice for. And and quite frankly, it's, it's if you wanna talk about high risk, it would be a high risk for Castro within parts of his community as for JFK within parts of his community. So this is, the CIA director's trying to obstruct this. Uh, I have a hard time thinking that the CIA director is working as hard at obstruction as maybe some other track. But we do know he's working on the obstruction.
1: Well, and see, uh, and interesting. Yeah, that, that, that's another interesting angle, though, that's never considered is that there has to be risk here for Castro because he is certainly gambling on exactly how this could change the relationship he has with the Soviet Union. Um, if there is a known, publicly known, Uh, detente, so to speak, between him and JFK, that could alter his relationship, right? With the only ally who was with him uh, of of major significance. Now, of course, the whole Che Guevara nexus, if you will, uh, is another consideration because they might see the American imperialists as a major problem. Um so there's a lot of risk here if this becomes well known, if this becomes a reality uh, for uh, Castro strategically, yes or no?
2: Yes, but yes, with the caveat that we know there are two things that are really driving Castro.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: First of all, he he considered himself betrayed by the Soviets over the missile crisis. right. They had made huge right. commitments, And Castro is a very emotional personality. He literally felt betrayed. I cannot trust the Soviets about anything. But he felt more betrayed because during 1963, he actually conducted an internal purge of his military. This doesn't get much talked about for some strange reason. Mm -hmm. Not only of his military, but of political parties in Cuba and literally conducted a purge of the radical communists and the Soviet supporters that had become so embedded. These are people that had gone to Russia, gone to Moscow, been trained. It was basically the Soviet clique within the Cuban government that he felt he 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 was beginning to feel that the Soviets were controlling Cuba or wanted to control Cuba as, as much as the Yankees might have. Mm-hmm. So. He, he really felt that his regime his personal control of the regime was at risk of this Soviet faction so there was some motive there was a pretty strong motive for him um, but one thing I'd like to insert with this and this is just tantalizing because we don't know any more about this we know a little of, of it from things that Vince Palomar have turned up but one of the things we do know is um, during this period of time Uh, JFK made an unscheduled trip to New York City Mm -hmm. and it looks as if it was to give him the opportunity to have some of these dialogues with people at the UN about this negotiation. The interesting thing is at that point in time, the Secret Service added a new technical specialist and actually conducted a, a new level of technical sweeps of the hotel that JFK was staying at Mm -hmm. and it is raw speculation but there's some reason to feel that JFK had become concerned that the CIA director was not only passively obstructing him but that he might have assigned Mr. Angleton to start collecting some more real-time information and we do know that they bugged Lisa Howard they bugged Lisa Howard's apartment and they bugged Lisa the telephone lines uh, carrying her calls to Cuba, Atwood's calls to Cuba. So again, we're not just talking about passive obstruction by the CIA to this initiative. We're talking about could be talking about very active obstruction.
1: Right, right. So all and and all of this needs to be viewed a, again as you know part of what's going on. The context once again uh, of all of what's happening. So. You know, to me, it, it it's very important to understand where things overlap, where things connect directly, where things are just tangentially connected. Um, and as I've said many times, this book is extremely important in doing that. So with, uh, with 10 easily solid minutes here, um, <laughs> cause we've almost got, you know, we've been through an hour and three quarters, uh, plus, um, I want to get to the heart of this, like, what is it that you think is uh, the, the key thing which is demonstrated in Nexus that is, of uh, you know, I, I, the whole thing is highly educational and, and highly valuable for somebody trying to wrap their minds around this? Um, and it's not something that's only for beginners. It's not something that's only for advanced students, if you will. I think it's all very solid and all a very good representation of, ready for this, how to study these things. Um, and, you know, that, that's, that's one of the unsung aspects of Larry Hancock's work, is that it's not just a collection of historical facts. It's not just a co- chronological representation of what occurred and then, oh, my theory. Um, it really is a, a guidebook to help you understand these things, even as new information emerges. Slot it in to what it is you're reading in Larry's book, and guess what? You'll be able to navigate it. So that's why I think all of your stuff is valuable, but this book especially, uh, when it comes to really trying to navigate the very, you know, the the very sort of complex um, subject matter that you need to understand in order to uh, be able to make these connections and to make these uh, assertions, where. Yes, indeed, there are people in proximity to one another. There are people working with one another. Here's how these operations differ. Here's how they overlap. Here's how they work together against one another. These, you know, these very simple explanations are not adequate enough to understand what really went on. Uh, When it comes to the JFK assassination, but also a variety of other things that are, again, uh, very uh, instructive when it comes to understanding how this did and also may have unfolded. Because as we stand today, Larry, and as you stood when you wrote this book, you don't necessarily know all the answers, but we're definitely filling in the map so that people can get to a lot of answers that used to be very unknown. And I think Nexus is one of those uh, uh, very powerful tools to help you read those maps, okay? You the listener, not you, Larry, (laughs) because... You know probably you've you've forgotten more about these maps than most of us know, but anyway so I give you the last ten minutes to uh to give us the uh you know the the real meat here what is the the best thing you think can be learned in this book what is the uh key element I mean it's up to you how you want to explain it but I'd like you to sort of uh, bring this to a uh You know, bring this to a solid end and tie a bow on the package, as I like to say, because it is necessary. And again, I'll give you guys the links to go get Nexus. I'll give you the link to Larry-Hancock.com in the show notes. And, um, you know, we got one more book to go through and possibly a bonus episode in the Larry Hancock collection. So, Larry, here we go. What is is the wrap-up on this one?
2: I I think the wrap-up is... Is twofold. Uh, so Nexus, the whole point was to to look at the CIA as an organization and say, where is the nexus for political assassination? How, how does it? What is? And what is the most likely location for the Kennedy murder under those circumstances? And and during the show, we just talked about. Could it have started at the top? Could it have started at the bottom? Could it start in the middle? And based on what we've just discussed, if the if the senior CIA officers are extremely heavily engaged in obstruction, uh, perhaps it started lower down. And so what I really try to do from that point on in the last third of Nexus is to say, all right, given all that, given how it generally operates, Who are the persons of interest? Who should we look at more closely? Look at in terms of what their roles were, who they were talking with, where they were traveling, what were the chronologies of their activities? So basically, it's a can we translate this to from where in the organization to who in the organization would have been involved in triggering an attack on the president? And that's that's what really the, the scenario that's laid out in, in the last part of the book. And, and it starts with basically, as all of these occur, who, who would have been having the conversations? Let, let's face it. I just, I just revealed some of this. Who would have been having the conversations about this back channel negotiation that could have, could have gotten to a field officer, could have gotten to a group of surrogates. That would have triggered them to act. And that's that's what the book discussed. How how could that have happened? What's the communications channel? We know we know the director, we know people in Washington learned about it. They were collecting information on it, they were sharing parts of it with JM Way, but but who would have really carried that message? Who would have carried the message down to the field officers and on to the people that had the skills to do it. Again, with with the understanding that 99% of the time, the CIA CIA officers do not engage in political acts, assassination personally. At most, they function as case officers, which means as advisors, enablers, supporters. They they don't do it themselves. Uh, they don't get involved in the operation. You know, you don't find that in in any CIA operations. You're not supposed to, much less assassination. So how how would it get translated? And which officers? Which officers at JM Wave might translate something to which particular CIA assets, exiles, surrogates, Mm. that could have brought... about the attack in Dallas. So that's that's what the book does. Now I will say, and Chuck, you put it this way: when I wrote this, I was able to point it to a certain level and bring up certain names, okay, as starting points. Like it, if it did happen, these are the people to look at and who to study. And what I do at that point in time was to give a lot of background I I thought to more deeply understand these people for example uh, things that don't get discussed within the JFK research community that kind of amaze me is the fact that David Morales who was head of operations in Miami for JM Wave and, and very much involved with a lot of, he was actually the military advisor for the DRE group had been, uh, that he had been involved with James Angleton mm-hmm. in 1961 and early 1962 in reworking the entire counterintelligence effort against Cuba. And that his people that he had, Morales had been trained, were reworked in conjunction with Angleton's recommendation into the Cuban intelligence group. Mm-hmm. And I, we talked earlier about how important counterintelligence was as a context for some of these bad things. Right. We also it doesn't get talked about the fact that William Harvey, who had been in charge of the of the effort CIA's effort against Castro in nineteen sixty two, had worked personally and very directly with James Angleton also, not only just in in conceptual levels of how to do political assassination but very specifically how to assassinate Fidel Castro and mm-hmm. that James Angleton had personally been giving Harvey advice and that James Angleton had even set up contacts within Cuba to support Harvey's efforts and so there's a, a depth of trust, a depth of exposure between Harvey and Angleton and Morales, that just as, I, I think maybe you're right, Chuck, it's because everybody was so busy talking about David Phillips. Right. I, I don't know. Uh, that, you know, or, or Dulles, or, mm-hmm. you know, Richard Helms, that nobody talked about these sorts of connections, which actually directly related to political assassination. That, right. as, as you and I have talked before, if you're going to look for murders, you might want to look at people who had done murders before, you know, who who is into this sort of thing, who has these skills, who knows the right people um, and who knows the right people in this case to organize, you know, an attack like we see in Dallas. So that's that's what that's kind of where the the discussion of these individuals is where Nexus concludes. And essentially says okay these are the persons of interest now we should really see if we can go further than this and which the next book that we're going to discuss tipping point is my effort to go further with this
1: right and and that's that's the interesting thing about the next book tipping point which is the chronologically last book you wrote uh regarding this but also is a uh you know, a, a, a solid culmination At least, you know, I, I read the one that, that was available on, uh, on on Mary Farrell But there is a uh, new version of it out there But we'll get into that two weeks from now uh, As for right now, I'm very satisfied that we've actually gotten a chance to go through Nexus I think it is important conceptually I think it's important materially And, uh, you know, it it, it is just uh, an, a testament to... Uh, The very solid, thoughtful, and coherent work of author Larry Hancock. Um, So again, Larry-Hancock.com is his website. You can go there, look at the blog, look at the books. Uh, Occasionally, I know that one of these shows gets posted over there, so you can follow up on some of the shows that we've done in the past take a look back through his blog, find out stuff that he's blogged about, not just about history, sometimes current events, and sometimes a little of both. And you know what? You get into that in some of other of Larry's books, not always about political assassinations, but somehow or other all roads seem to lead back to Rome. Uh, And (laughs) it comes back to this because, um, you know, as we explained to begin with, uh, you know, in the very first episode here, uh, I think it's uh, it's been a very solid, logical uh, library of stuff. It's a mini library, yes, indeed, but uh, one that is well-written, well-sourced, and uh, extremely informative. So there you have it, Larry. I thank you again for doing this. I truly appreciate it, and uh, I look forward to uh, two weeks from now when we get together again to go through uh, Tipping Point, which... You know, there there you go. That title actually stands out a little bit among the others. So maybe we'll have to get more into the book title. And I think we adequately explained Nexus. But I thank you, sir. Really, I do.
2: I enjoyed it, Chuck.
1: All right, guys. Listen, I appreciate all of you who have listened. I hope you have learned. And if you have not learned enough, by all means, go and get some of Larry Hancock's work. You can start with anything, but just like, uh, you know, a small set of Legos, they all fit together nicely. <laughs> okay, so uh, if you get one, get a couple of them, especially when you see a package you can uh, agree to, you You know, use your shipping discounts, whatever, I assure you, you will not be disappointed by the work of Larry Hancock. Anyway, no matter who you are, where you are, when you are, remember that I am merely Ocelli and all of you are indeed the effect.
0: Good night. In Denial, Secret Wars with Air Strikes and Tanks by Larry Hancock Secret Wars became a staple of U.S. covert operations and are still happening today. Larry Hancock's book, In Denial, rips the cover off many of them. Using new files, it exposes things about the Bay of Pigs that no one has ever written about before. It shows why it really failed and why the United States did not learn from it. It also shows why other countries today are doing secret operations with more success. This is the book that puts what some want to deny into the light. In Denial, Secret Wars with air strikes and Tanks. Larry Hancock. For more information, go to Larry-Hancock.com. Pick up your copy of In Denial at Amazon.com in digital or physical form.